Hey folks, let's spend some time with friends up north. Pat Kreitlow of Up North News is on Lake Wissota. Kristen Bry of Asgos, Wisconsin is along Lake Michigan. And up on Lake Minocqua is Kirk Bankstead of the Minocqua Brewing Company. Wherever you are, welcome, because you're up north. All right, welcome to the cabin. You've made it up north. Nice to have you here. I'm Pat Kreitlow, managing editor of upnorthnewswi.com. I'm Kristen Bry from Asgos, Wisconsin. And I'm Kirk Bankstad of the Manaqua Brewing Company. We join you live every Wednesday evening at 7 on Devil Radio, News Talk 92.7. We play it back over the weekend. We post it at upnorthpodcast.com, and our email address is info at upnorthpodcast.com. Our guest is Heather Dubois-Boranon, Executive Director of the Wisconsin Public Education Network. We're going to talk about the shell game that the legislature has been playing with what should be a once-in-a-generation opportunity to fix our state's long-running budget issues, and instead... Certain politicians have weaponized a multi-billion dollar surplus in order to continue an effort to kill public education in Wisconsin, or at least uh, severely cripple it. And Heather will be our guest at the bottom of the hour to talk more about that. Um, first off, we have to uh, make a couple of confessions here. Uh, first, this this may not be a good show because I forgot one of my, I, my lucky charms that I use for the show. I, I don't my my line in Kugel Coaster here. Does not have a beer on it. There's no old fashioned on it. I forgot my my lucky beverage for the show. So so weirdly, I decided to go booze free too today. And what is having, wrong with us? What are the like chances? Well, I'm sick. My excuse is I'm sick, so I'm drinking You're tea. Sick. Oh. <laughs> well, it's the first time none of us have been drinking beer during the show. Oh my dear, god, dear listener, we're doomed. Uh, come along for the ride, won't you? Um, now the other reason we're in a pickle tonight and. Um, you know, it happens anytime that you're doing a podcast or a radio show live, and then it's going to be played back later. Well, we are here this Wednesday evening with the Milwaukee Bucks about to open up the Eastern Conference Finals against the Atlanta Hawks. Um, but we don't need to focus on the game itself so much as the fact that the Bucks have made it this far, especially after falling two games to none to Brooklyn in, in the, uh, the last round, but then coming all the way back to win it in game seven. And so downtown Milwaukee is going to be rocking, which uh, it has been doing for every playoff game in something called the Deer District, which is a great development of the area around the Pfizer Forum. They're thinking more than 25,000 people will be outside the arena, not only showing support for the local NBA team, but spending lots of money on bars and restaurants and shops in that part of downtown. At least that's what I've heard. The other two people whose voices you're about to hear can say a lot more about the Deer District and whether this was a good experiment or not putting the arena downtown after all, guys. What do you want to do? You want to talk first, Kristen, or me? Well, I mean, I feel, I feel like you've only been down there once, right? You went to yeah. one game. So you go yes. first, because I feel like I've probably been down there you, a lot you more. You live it. But yeah, so, I mean, initially, when they were going through and kind of getting all this funding for Pfizer Forum, I was like, here we go. Yet now Milwaukee's coming, you know, getting all the money and, you know, up north isn't getting anything from state government. Uh, so I wasn't so, such a big fan, but I was there last week. And I saw this thousands of people that could come from all parts of Milwaukee to just watch, you know, for free, watch the game on the big screen. And it did seem like a really wonderful, um, you know, it was, it was a beautiful area. It was a wonderful way to kind of get morale, a boost morale in Milwaukee. So um, I, I was, I'm, I changed my mind and I'm a big fan. And 
and the Bucks game I went to in the, in the forum. It's, it's the first one I've been to, and I loved it. it, it and the, the funniest thing was I actually knew that guy who became like, like he got his 15 minutes of fame by ripping his T-shirt off. Like, oh, God, the guy ripping the shirts. I, I'm like, he looks familiar. And I'm like, oh, my God, is that that's Tony Schultz, right? Yeah. Yeah, he's a good he he's a farmer in Athens and he, and he puts he, he's he's from Athens, okay? Way up here. You're from Manaqua. <laughs> so the whole point being that yeah, the the you know, when you put a, a, a franchise in a place like in Milwaukee or Madison or Green Bay or something, you don't just get people from there, you get people from across the state. And by the way, I I, I hasten to add that when the Pfizer Forum deal was going through before it was called the Pfizer Forum, when no everybody just knew it as this new Milwaukee arena. Folks like Dana Walks, a state rep from Eau Claire at the time, you know, made sure to support it because they made the point that you want this kind of economic development everywhere. The Pablo Center was going up at the confluence in Eau Claire, and there's all kinds of other ways to do smart economic development, not corporate welfare like Foxconn. There's ways to do this that that attract tourists, not just from Wisconsin, for, but from beyond. And you, like you said, you help all the shops and the, the bars and the restaurants and everything. And, and then you get you get farmers coming down and ripping their t-shirts on, on national team. <laughs> and, and he did it, what, six times? Oh, I, I don't know. Somebody kept on giving him his, their t-shirts. He got like <laughs> six t-shirts. I don't think he came with six t-shirts. Uh, I would hope not. I don't know. Uh, Kristen, you see any similar antics when you were there? I didn't see as many ripped t-shirts, but yeah, I mean, so when I first moved to Milwaukee, I was living literally right by the Fiserv. Uh, I could like, I parked in the parking garage with the big Giannis poster on it. And then it was a block away from, I've had to walk past the Fiserv and then my apartment was right there. And that was in October. And so it was still like dead in the middle of COVID and downtown Milwaukee was dead. Like on us, on a, living in an area that should have, everyone told me I should be complaining over how loud it is right off of Third Street with all those bars normally, right across the street from where the, the old Journal Sentinel office. Um, right, that and, whole area that was going to be busy for the Democratic National Convention. And instead, yeah. you could have fired a cannon down the street. Yeah, it was that bad. And so it was, so I, it's been so nice to see that area come alive, um, considering my first introduction to it was it's so quiet and so I've been down there pretty much every single game this I think this is the first game I will have not been in the area or at the the game um since for during last the uh, last series and so we're going to the game on Friday so I'm really excited about that um but yeah I mean it's also been nice like I my boyfriend who runs different events in Milwaukee that he's really good friends with a bunch of bar owners down here and they just struggled so much this last year. So to watch all of them go from famine to feast instead and be so busy and thrive, like finally thriving. It's just, it's, it is kind of that feeling of like, all right, we're trying, we're starting to get maybe a taste of what last year could have been like, had the mm -hmm. DNC actually come and had, and had the bucks been able to go and actually had, had a series yeah. last yeah. year instead of the bubble, et cetera. So yeah, it's been, it's been really I'll, I'll out him he, he, cause he doesn't care. But at, when we won game si uh, seven, I turned around and my boyfriend was like, shed a tear. Cause he's just like, our city <laughs> needs this so badly. Like I'm so happy. That's great. Well, and you know, he's not alone. I mean, I, I remember when Don Nelson was consistently getting 50 win seasons for the bucks, but then there was this drought. That's about as long as, you know, the Packer drought of the seventies and eighties, you know, before Brett Favre came along and you just wonder what's it going to take. And, and finally for the bucks, they've, they've, 
have finally found the the secret sauce, uh, which I, I guess would be a little Greek salad dressing or whatever you want to call it. Um, <laughs> pl plus putting that arena downtown. And, you know, I, I still don't know that it would be, you know, if it would, if, if it was the right or wrong decision to put Miller Park, now American Family Field, you know, right next to County Stadium, because when I lived down there, you know, 20 plus years ago, when my wife was going to medical school down there, you know, all the talk was about replacing County Stadium and where would it go? And there was a, there was a significant push to put it, you know, in, in downtown and have development there. Ultimately, they left it where it is because of the, you know, the, the tailgating aspect and everything else. But watching what they've done with Pfizer Forum just tells me that have they decided to put the baseball stadium there instead? Um, once again, if you, if you put smart development around it, 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 it works you know, so good on them and, and good on the bucks. You know, we obviously we're, we're wishing them well, and especially all the people around that area. Um, and as we're going to talk about later, there's a restaurant group in the Eau Claire area that has moved away from tips and is, instead is going to be paying their staff $16 an hour uh, so that, you know, people aren't going home with, you know, $5 in their pocket if they had a slow day. So, you know, we're seeing some progress from the service industry as well. So we're we, bouncing uh, back, Pat, we're bouncing back. There you go. Hey, we're going to take a break. And then with all the efforts by Republicans to restrict voting rights, it, it got us to thinking about election day itself. Specifically, how did voting on Tuesdays become a thing? Kristen has the answer right after the break. You're up north. Welcome back to the Up North Podcast. I'm Kirk Bankstad. That's Kristen oh, I'm Bry. Kristen Bry from Asco's Wisconsin. I didn't know who was going first. I don't know. I don't know who doesn't. Does the boyfriend hold up the cue cards for you? Because he's got to pick that up. He's, he's, he's <laughs> he got to get with the program here. I'm sick. And I'm, you know what? Oh, oh, I'm doing, doing, I'm, I, my brain is cloudy. <laughs> uh, I'm Pat Kreitlow, by the way. And this week, the Republicans who run the Wisconsin legislature wasted some more of your time, more of your tax money by writing, debating and approving bills they knew had no chance of becoming law, not just because they know Governor Tony Evers will veto them, but because the bills are direct attacks on our democracy. This is something that starts at the very top. And for Wisconsin Republicans, that's Assembly Speaker Robin Voss. In a press release after the bills were passed, Voss said, quote, in this last presidential election, there was indisputable evidence of irregularities right here in Wisconsin. That's not true. Not one bit. The votes were counted and recounted, and the only irregularity was the amount of rumor mongering from people actively undermining a secure election. So this week's voter suppression bills targeted absentee ballots. That's a very useful way for you to take part in an election when you can't get away to vote in person on a Tuesday. And so we started wondering about, you know, how election days got to be held on a Tuesday in the first place. And that meant we had to send uh, Kristen to the Encyclopedia Britannica, um, although she's probably too young to know what that is, to no, do a little digging. Um, <laughs> it's Google with pages. Uh, so we asked Kristen to, to do uh, a little homework on that. What'd you find? So I had always known that it was about travel time. Uh, as far as like needing to, you, know, you couldn't travel on Sunday and whatever, but what I actually found out. So basically it's up until 1845, uh, states were allowed to hold their elections anytime they pleased within a 34 day period. Uh, and so this, but the, at that point, 
because there wasn't one specific day, like certain states would have their election and the results would come in and then they thought that it would influence other states. And so in 1845, before most of the states that we have now were even states, mm-hmm. I mean, at that, by 1845, we probably were hovering around what, 25, 30 states Close in to total. 30, yeah, yeah. And so uh, they made, there was a federal law that was the, the uh, that said that you have to have voting on the first Tuesday after the first Monday in November. Now, why that? Because at that point, most citizens were farmers. And so they live far away from where they would have to cast their ballot. And so what day could they actually vote became what days could they actually travel? And so at that point, you couldn't travel on Sunday unless you're going to church for Sabbath. And you had to be back by Wednesday because that was when they went to market, the farmers went to market. So Tuesday became the option. So they could travel on Monday and get back in time by Wednesday. So that's why we voted. That's why, we, that's it. Like that it makes, is the reason we per- vote on makes Tuesday. Perfect sense. Crystal clear as to why we're still doing it that way. You and <laughs> even better is that's also why we vote in November is because it was after the harvest and we couldn't do it in the spring because that's planting. And November's after the harvest, but before the winter really kicks in. And so, because again, people were traveling by like horse and buggy. Mm-hmm. And so- I just find the irony of the original reason we have Tuesday was to convenience voters. And now voting on Tuesday is one of the biggest inconveniences that like keep people from voting. And so, uh, but yeah, and so that was the little history lesson there. Um, Nothing sacred, Nothing, nothing sacred about Tuesday, nothing sacred about November, arbitrarily picked because of an agrarian economy 170 years ago. And and as we've discussed, there are a lot of ways that you can solve for this without even having to move the day. You can still have it on a Tuesday in November, but you know, you, you have early voting, uh, you can do absentee balloting, you can do mail-in elections, you could move the election to the weekend, or you could make election day a holiday, all of these things. But the, the Republican talking points to justify their bills, I mean, it isn't just about, you know, avoiding fraud, which doesn't exist in the first place in any kind of consequential number. But the point they you hear made frequently is that election day is this sacred single day event when everyone must do their duty. And none of this letting people vote the day before or the week before because election day is on a Tuesday. But it, you know, as Kristen points out, there's nothing sacred about it. There's no good reason not to allow other options. No good reason to make voting a burden for those whose jobs or health or distance or family considerations make it unlikely they'd, that they'd otherwise take part in their own democracy. So the answer to expanded voting options um, is not to be, as Kristen had said before, the only advanced democracy that actively works to discourage people from voting, and especially certain people from voting. I mean, that's not what we're supposed to be made of, unless, of course, you're maybe not as committed to democracy as you should be. And that's me putting the the ball on the tee for Kirk and his super PAC to swing away. (laughs) Yeah. So obviously, uh, we have uh, politicians uh, starting with Trump and following in Wisconsin with Ron Johnson, uh, Tom Tiffany, Scott Fitzgerald, primarily, who voted against 
uh, the election results to let Biden become president. And Robin Voss and all his minions on the legislature are acting the same way, that they'd rather have an authoritarian government than a democracy because they're trying to suppress the vote. And so we're just not going to let that fly up in northern Wisconsin. So we just put up a big billboard that reminded everybody that the January 6th insurrection, which was fomented by uh, Ron Johnson and Tom Tiffany and many others, uh, was an act of uh, war against the United States. And uh, no matter if they say it was tourists that were there or actual military trained uh, domestic terrorists, which it were, uh, we're not gonna let them tell that lie. And that's why we're gonna keep on putting up billboards and remind Wisconsinites that these guys are lying to them. The new billboard went up on what highway, do you remember? Oh, what highway, Pat? Was it highway 60? 51. Was it 51? Right. Okay. Yeah, 51 I going north, but it's okay. right after Merrill on a, on U, a State Highway 64. So everyone going up north, uh, no matter if they listen to Fox News or not, will be reminded that, uh, that these guys are not telling the truth. And so this week, um, H.R. 1, which was the uh, in Congress, the, the you know, the, the Democrats um, catch all. I mean, it had... It has a lot of stuff in there. Uh, and I, I mean, let me let me try to find my partial list here. Um, it would allow for early voting, drop boxes, which Republicans have been trying to severely limit or restrict. Election day would be a holiday. You could be sent ballots, not just applications for ballots. It would give you time to correct any errors on a ballot. Um, there would be, um, let's see, an independent commission to do redistricting automatic voter registration, uh, prevention of voter roll purges, make it easier to trace your absentee ballot, um, more public funding of elections, um, and disclose your, your dark money donors. There's a lot of things in there, and there was no way Republicans were going to pass it. And frankly, there's Democrats that would like to protect some of these things that are in there. H.R. 1 was set up as a symbolic bill more than anything else a couple of years back before democrats were in the majority and now there's a you know a, a battle within the party of how much of this do you go to the mats for and how much of it do you say well you know is, is aspirational we'll try to come back to it at, at at some point because i mean look voter id is something that democrats are are very much opposed to but it has majority support of americans right now so you know which even though again there's no fraud that it's been causing so there's a lot that's got to be debated on this but it, it it seems like Kristen, the the one thing that you know really shouldn't be up for debate is is putting up barriers and, and limiting everybody to just a few hours on a tuesday yeah i mean that definitely feels like if we're if you're going to limit it to one day at all i know that they're part of my research when i found this there, there's like the uh a group of politicians and advocacy people trying to like move it to a weekend, make it a holiday. Like there's so many other things besides as is that we could do to kind of, to encourage more people to vote. Um, so like, there's really no argument that they can hold as to keep it white as is, I think. I, I can't believe I just, you know, maybe I just live in a bubble. Of course I live in a bubble, but like how can Republicans convince Americans that all this limiting of, of of the opportunity to vote is the right thing like how do they convince them time and time again that that this is like what they should be voting for or why they should be uh, supporting Repub the republican party when they just try to take the vote away from so many people well and that is the thing that that has to be put out there that even if if hr1 
it doesn't pass. You can still call attention to the, the extremely restrictive bills that are being passed by some legislatures and being passed by this legislature, although it'll be uh, vetoed by Governor Evers. But I think the point that has to be made is that this has a lot of similarities to the Affordable Care Act. Because of all the, the pressure that Republicans and conservatives put on it, you had a whole bunch of Americans saying, I'm opposed to Obamacare. Well, then they break it down into pieces and say, well, what do you think of this? What do you think of this? What do you think of this? Oh, I like those things. Well, that's the Affordable Care Act. And as it turns out, and another Manmouth University poll this week uh, made clear that when you just go through the elements of political reform, it gets the elements in H.R. 1 get 68 percent public support, including 57 percent of Republicans. So the public support is there. It's just a matter of getting the, the politicians to finally listen to their constituents. We'll take a break here. And when we come back, Heather Dubois Bornon, Executive Director of the Wisconsin Public Education Network, will join us to talk about uh, this state budget debate and what it is not doing to help out schools that are uh, deeply cash starved. You're up north. Welcome back to the Up North Podcast. I'm Kristen Bry. And I'm Kirk Bankstead. I'm Pat Kreitlow. And our guest this week is another Dubois Bornon, Executive Director of the Wisconsin Public Education Network, a statewide coalition of advocates, educators, and community supporters of students and strong public schools. Um, she's an educator turned advocate and a parent of two kids in the Sun Prairie school system. Now, the state budget is the latest round of a political shell game that is, you know, sadly, parts of it are new in, in terms of we've never really quite done this with a surplus before, but it's old in that, you know, they've been playing games with public school budgets for quite some time. And so we want to get into a bit of the, the setup of, of where we are now with a state budget that the assembly will pass next Tuesday, the Senate will pass next Wednesday, and then Governor Evers will have to decide whether to, you know, line item veto this, that, or the other thing, or, or maybe the whole thing. So Heather, welcome. Thank you for joining us here. Well, thanks for having me and for um, shining a spotlight on this super critical issue that matters to every kid in the state. I, I really do want to get uh, at some point into the what's unique about this uh, surplus and the the, the wasted opportunities uh, that that are happening right now in the legislature. But we should we should really kind of go back a you know a step here to the start of this budget cycle, because it always starts with a governor proposing something, and then who's ever running the legislature you know counters. So what was the setup that what was what was Governor Evers hoping to do uh, versus what? was uh, being planned by the legislature before we got word of a surplus? You know, we came into this budget cycle feeling pretty good because the budget that Governor Evers put on the table was one that kind of came directly out of a bipartisan commission that was formed a couple of years ago, ago called the Blue Ribbon Commission on School Funding. I don't know how many people remember that, but these folks went all around the state listening to what people had to say about the concerns about schools, put all these ideas on the table. And then the governor really translated a lot of those things into a budget that would have gone a really long way in closing some of the major gaps facing our kids and addressing some of the um, glaring and frankly um, unacceptable inequities that we um, continued to per perpetuate as a state. So the budget on the table 
was excellent and it didn't go far enough, but it went pretty far in starting to close some of these. It did things like raise funding for English language learners for the first time in 10 years. It helped to put us back on a track toward reimbursing fairly for special education, which we haven't done for decades. It started to close some gaps for mental health aids that are desperately needed across the state and lots of other good things. Um, that budget is now in the garbage and the Joint Finance Committee sliced it by about 90%. Um, not 90. only did they, yeah, not, well, I mean, there's like 10% of the things that the governor had proposed are, are still on the table, but um, the shell game here is that even what they've offered, you know, which they're touting as two thirds funding is meaningless to schools because it doesn't come with what's called a revenue limit increase. Now, this is the confusing part, and I know people are going to get bored when I start talking about it, so just hold on. Revenue limits means the state controls how much your district is allowed to spend. So right, that, you know, I'll, I'll interrupt you from time to time. The yeah, party yeah, of local control, boring. the party of local <laughs> control is, has put controls on local school boards as to what they can raise to educate their children. Exactly. And that's why we have to go to referenda, because right. if we want to spend more, we have to vote to to make that decision at the local mm -hmm. level. Right. But usually, and we call this the Tommy Thompson standard, usually we would give schools an inflationary increase at the minimum so that at least they can raise raise spending enough to meet up with inflation and to to meet. Rising. Oh, we're gonna... budget raises yeah. revenue limits by zero dollars which means zero new dollars get to kids, which means zero new dollars get to classrooms. And so even though the state is paying a larger share, it basically just comes back to us in the form of a local property tax cut. So if you really wanna see more aid get to kids, you're gonna to have to go vote at the ballot box next April and raise taxes on yourself to do it. So we were trying to come up with the right analogy to describe this. And in the case of you know a glass of water being what you know school funding would be, uh, if you if you could do it with like you know oil and water or two different color liquids, you're you're reducing one of their, you're raising the amount of one liquid in there, but you're reducing the amount of the other, and the amount of money really isn't changing very much. But that takes us now to the surplus, where again because of revenue caps, think of that surplus as a big bucket of water where some of it could go into that glass for public education, but the revenue caps, if they go untouched, are like putting a coaster over the top of the glass and all that revenue goes other places like the tax cuts to some of the wealthiest households and things like that. Right, Heather? That's exactly right. And I'll tell you what, the kids don't care. The kids don't care who poured how much water into that glass. They care <laughs> whether or not they're still thirsty. And our kids are still thirsty. This is something that we've known for years and years. And we're the the budget that was on the table from the governor was was being touted as sort of, you know, this Democrat wish list, one politician called it, or, you know, an, an unreasonable request. It was for the basics. It was for things that would keep doors open and make sure that we were really meeting the minimum needs of kids across our districts and start closing some of those gaps between have and have nots that our messed up funding formula has caused across the state for the past, you know, 30 plus years. And I'll tell you what, if we don't start closing this, these gaps now, when we're in this once in a lifetime situation where we actually have the money to do it, when will we? I mean, how, how, how 
long are we willing to stay at the bottom in all these categories, Wisconsin? We are worst in the nation for racial disparities between black and white students. We are worst in the nation in how we fund special education for among states who fund like we do. We are worst in the nation for English language learner reimbursements. All of these categories are areas that um, the, the state Supreme Court has identified as places we really need to do more work that and helping students in poverty. And it's just places we're making the gaps wider. Why wouldn't we take an advantage of this opportunity to close them? That's the question that people are asking all over the state. And that's right. when why they've been out in the streets all week trying to, you know, ring this bell before the legislature votes on this. Mm -hmm. what's, so, what's so, and I, I know you can't get into the heads of the people who are making, who this is the way that they're voting or bills they're proposing, but I just don't understand what the end game is. Is the end game to have every child go to a charter school and private school and just to abolish public school? Is that, is that their ideal situation? Like, that's what I don't understand is like, it's by like starving or, or, or like just continuing to pull money to not fund something that goes to everyone's constituency. Like, I just don't understand the ration, the rationale. You know, that's a great question, Kristen. And I, again, you're right. I don't see into the hearts and minds of all our lawmakers and I don't know. And I would hope that that's not what all of them really want. But we know what the, the end game is for the privatization movement, a voucher in every backpack, right? They've made this claim clear for many, many years. Um, there's an article that's almost 50 years old now by Milton Friedman, public schools, make them private. The privatization agenda and this idea that if we, you know, kind of slowly shift our resources away from the public sphere and into private hands, it's gonna improve outcomes for kids has not only been, been debunked, by the, by the practice that we've seen in this state and many others, but by the fact that um, it's just costing us more and more and more and making the cost of educating so many more kids unsustainable for the state. And who pays the price? Our most vulnerable students, students in poverty, students in the largest districts with the most expensive and so on. It's, it's simply unconscionable and we've got to do something about it. That's kind of why our network got started and we're trying to you know, just find ways to remove the politics from this conversation so that we can just talk about what does all this mean for kids? We're, not, we're a nonpartisan group. And so even though this is a hyper-partisan issue, we always say that politics is our problem, not our fault. We need to find solutions. There's a rainbow on our horizon right now in the form of a $6 billion surplus that would go so far to resolving these issues for kids please, please let our children partake in the pot of gold and do not dump it in the trash. I hear you, Heather. Um, I so you, you know, you came in and said, uh, Governor Evers proposed uh, in his budget something that would kind of get us back to some level of normalcy. Can you can we take it back to, um, you know, I grew up in Wisconsin, I grew up in Stevens Point, and, and I grew up in a wonderful public education system, Stevens Point area senior high, I felt like I was given bash. every, you know, spash, I felt like I was given every uh, opportunity ever. I mean, we had really high level math classes, we had advanced placement classes, we had lots of music courses, I was like, this is pretty awesome. Um, when did, when did this change? I mean, I left Wisconsin for a while uh, and on, on lived on either coast and came back. So I wasn't here, but can you kind of tell us how we became last in a lot of things from being probably first or top 10 uh, for a while? Can you give us some of the history of why we're so broke 
broken already before this budget even came came to pass. Well, well first I want to say public schools all over the state are still doing great things and they're still connecting with kids and they're still providing a world-class education through the cracks and and despite all of this because our educators are amazing and have been forced of necessity to always find a way to do it. And so I think that's part of the challenge is that people love their local public schools and they see ways that they are meeting kids needs and think, oh, you can do it with less and less and less and less and also less and less and less and less. And so um, I would say it all started back in 1994-95 when we put that squeeze on the revenue limits and started limiting how much districts could spend. That's when the inequities really started to get cemented across the state because it was so arbitrary and so weird and because our, our funding formula aligns to property value, not student need. And so it was doomed from the start. But then uh, some of you might recall the year 2011, we had a brand new governor. <laughs> yes, who, yes. Uh, decimated our schools with the biggest cut at the time that had ever been seen in any public school system in in the nation you know over two billion dollars in cuts that year plus pulling back collective bargaining for students i mean that's when i got into this fight because i was like whoa 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 this is you know what this is going to mean in my district like we're already struggling to to like meet some of the basics like this is not okay this uh, reminds me of you know one of the one of the first big stories uh, for Up North News when we when we signed on early last year uh, was putting out uh, reporting on a study that was done that found that if instead of Act Ten and everything else, if school spending had just stayed at 2011 levels, yeah. not adjusted for inflation, just stayed at 2011 levels, schools would have had four billion dollars more over the past 10 years, you wouldn't have to raise taxes or anything. So that's 4 billion that that schools uh, lost out amongst so many other things. I want to get to one specific that's where we are right now. Yep. I want to get to one specific part because there's, there's so many other different ways to break this down. But I think one is especially heartbreaking. And that's special education. Look, you can you can debate whether we should have two thirds funding, you know, more or less than two thirds funding. But special education is one that is woefully underfunded. And again, you there was no opportunity uh, given to fix that in this budget, was there? Oh, there was opportunity, all right. Well, I mean, I mean the, the opportunity governor, wasn't the governor, taken. Yeah, right. The governor proposed raising the special re education reimbursement to 60%. Because right second, now it's what? By the second. Right now it's about 27 27 percent. Yeah. I mean, it, I haven't seen the numbers shake down. They always do that at the very end of the year. Right, but it was right. supposed to be to 30. But but because they didn't make it some certain, it didn't reach that mark, which they've done again. So they have ticked it up just the tiniest bit. But the fact is, in the year 1985, we funded 100 percent. For a good long oh, wow. stretch, we funded at 60 percent. For a while, we were funding at over 80 percent. And right now, we're, we're funding, you know, less than 30 cents on the dollar for our public school kids reimbursement for special education. This is a $1 billion a year annual funding gap that districts have to take out of their general operating funds, money that would go to programs, to teachers, staff, to fixing buildings, whatever they need to do. And they're, ha and they're, they're frittering it away. Meanwhile, you want to know how much we fund, uh, reimbursement for students who uh, need special education 
purposes who are on a voucher, that's right. Over 100%. By yeah, state exactly. statute, it's 90%, but it works out well over that. By the time it, we, it, we shake everything down. It sure, so it's a yeah. gross double standard and absolutely unacceptable. It sure works great. Yeah, if, if you're on if you're on one side of the ledger here. Heather Dubois-Bornon from the Wisconsin Public Education Network. We really appreciate you helping uh, shine a light on what's going on with the budget. Uh, we know it's, it's, a, it's a, a big, tough fight, but we wish you all the best with it. Well, I thank you so much. And I invite everybody to go to wisconsinnetwork.org and find out how you can raise your voice if you're mad about anything I said, and I sure hope you are. All right. Thank you, Heather. We'll be back in just a bit. You're up north. One of these days, we're going to play them Cooley Boys and that song all the way through. Um, in fact, I, I predict we're going to do that at the end of next week's show. But for now, I get to tell you the Up North podcast is a production of the three individuals talking into the modern day equivalent of a Panasonic tape recorder. And we're glad you're here to press play and let this little cassette tape fill you in on Wisconsin news and issues from the past week. The Up North podcast is not affiliated with Up North News, a state-based newsroom that I help manage for the Courier Newsroom network of outlets across the country. In my day job, I join with a lot of other fine journalists who put stories on Up North News that bring important state and national issues to the personal and local levels. We take a whole bunch of blah, 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 and we translate it into what it really means for families, farmers, entrepreneurs, our state's natural resources, infrastructure, and the economy. You can find it online at upnorthnewswi.com, uh, one of several newsrooms that I now help manage, along with the Gander in Michigan, the Keystone in Pennsylvania, and uh, more yet to come with other announcements. Courier Newsroom also has state-based newsrooms through the Dogwood in Virginia, the Copper Courier in Arizona, the Cardinal and Pine in North Carolina, uh, the Floriqua in Florida, and the Americano, the only U.S. news site created by Latinas for Latinas. So if you've got friends in any of those places, let them know they have a new and better option for news about state politics and policy. Kristen. So as goes Wisconsin, we produce content that is motivated by three things, getting you to laugh, making the super complicated, super not, and motivating more people to give a damn. So whether it's Wisconsin history, sports, or policy and politics, we break it down in, with a comedic twist in 60 seconds or less. To put it bluntly, we're trying to move Wisconsin forward one joke at a time. So we have a brand spanking new website that you can go check out, uh, www.asgoeswisconsin.com, or you can find us on all the social medias at asgoeswisconsin. It was a great relaunch, really. I mean, Thank super. You. Those of you who haven't seen it yet, stop dithering. Get over there. Kirk. So before I get into my spiel, Pat, I think we should get the Cooley Boys on as guests next week. What do you think? Hey, it works for me. I mean, <laughs> those guys are a great band, and they've been they've been they've been playing on our our podcast for this last whole season. So it might be a good way to end the season. Works for me. I, now now you've got a job to do for next week. Good luck with that. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So before we uh, kind of talk, wrap things up, I just want to talk about a little bit about the Super PAC. We've done a lot since last January. We've raised over $200,000 from people buying T-shirts, beer, and all, making uh, individual donations straight to the pack. Now, as I said earlier, we already spent about ten th tens of thousands of dollars on billboards and radio ads reminding our neighbors up north that they are being lied to by Senator Ron Johnson, Congressman Tom Tiffany, and all the Republican cowards in the state legislature who do the bidding of Robin Voss instead of working for their constituents. 
we are going to keep doing that. Uh, we also spent $40,000 in partnership with Citizens Action of Wisconsin to call voters up north and educate them on how gerrymandering is destroying Wisconsin's democracy and now urging them to call urging them to call the Republican cheaters and legislators who are perpetuating it. So if you like what we're doing uh, up north and uh, you wish to donate to the Monaco Brewing Company Super PAC, I encourage you to go to our website at www.monacobrewingcompany.com. Now, I did, I did ask you off air if Monaco Brewing Company, uh, your, your last uh, progressive beer was Evers Ale. And I had no idea, so I just asked if anything else is brewing, pardon the pun. You said yes. Uh, you told me, you know, you held me the secrecy. So I just <laughs> want to find out before our, when we go out with our final show of the season next week, before we take some time off, are you going to be able to unveil it next week? Or are we going to have to wait till sometime in July? I I can unveil it next week. Okay. I, can, I needed to give Eversale some time to percolate through the grocery stores before <laughs> I introduce the next one. <laughs> <laughs> nope, that that works fine. So there, we'll have that that big reveal as well before our summer vacation begins. Uh, as always, we want to thank Devil Radio News Talk 92.7, where we are live Wednesdays at 7. And be sure to download the Devil Radio app. You can listen to the station live on the go, get shows on demand, and much more. Okay, we wanted to give one update on uh, last week's big topic, which was PFAS, the industrial chemicals, uh, the so-called forever chemicals uh, that have been spilled around Wisconsin by industry and by other by other uh, actors. And it's been threatening our water supply and our health. We wanted to let you know that on Tuesday, the state assembly passed a bill that at first sounds very generous, a $10 million pot of money that could be given to local governments to pay for cleanup of PFAS contaminated sites. But of course, with the GOP owned by the WMC, the bill has a big catch. In return for the money, local governments would be banned from suing the polluters to make them pay for the damage they've done. So state taxpayers pick up the entire tab and the polluters get off scot-free. Another example of um, what's, what's the phrase, Kirk, capitalism for the wealthy until they need socialism to pay the bills. Uh, yeah, I mean, this is, uh, why are taxpayers, I mean, like corporations are making money off of our land, polluting our water and our, our, our lakes. They have, they should be the ones that pay for the cleanup. Uh, it's ridiculous. And we got to keep, we're going to keep on talking about PFAS. Uh, yep. We'll, we'll continue to follow that. Now I want to switch gears in our final uh, minute and a half here to something uh, uh, perhaps more optimistic or perhaps you, you disagree. So uh, quickly, I want to let you know that a group of Eau Claire restaurants and bars have increased their hourly wage to $16 uh, moving away from tipping uh, proponents say it's more equitable for the employees, but others say that some of those employees are going to make less money. Uh, Kristen, as, as we've talked about it a couple of different times, what, what are your thoughts as some more places move uh, and ask people not to tip and are paying 16 bucks? I think that's good. I think that's the only way you start to fix this is like, and I, I mean, I know we've talked about it a couple of times in there and I don't own a restaurant or a bar, but unlike Kirk, but I think there's, obviously always inequities between front of the house and back of the house. And, and, you know, I think between having to raise prices or getting rid of tipping, but like, I think between um, seeing how hard it's been able for uh, bars and restaurants to staff because people have found other jobs that are more consistent, that pay more consistently. And I think there's, it's just a, an industry that is ripe for a revolution in how they treat their employees, how they pay their employees. So I feel like this is a really good step forward in a place that's not 
you know, the liberal bastion like Madison or something sure. like that. And like right. an actual, Kirk? So yeah, I think it's great. Kirk, 10 seconds. I think it's great, Pat. I'm so happy about it. Let us let us go into the wilderness and say goodbye to the people. <laughs> All right. <laughs> Next week, our season finale as we wrap things up and take some time off in July and August. So for Kristen Bryan, Kirk Bankstead, I'm Pat Kreitlow. We'll see you next week up north.